All right. Why don't y'all grab your seats and we'll jump in. And the very first thing on the top page of page one of my notes is don't waste time, don't crack dad jokes, don't say dumb things, get right to it because we've got a lot to cover. And I'm already not doing that, so whatever. Y'all, we gotta help. we got to help a young lady from Ukraine. It's the other side of the world. I get it. And many of us don't know what... Uh, how to get involved. It's a long way away, but this could be one profound way. I, I love what Andy said years ago, that you can't do this, you know, what you can't do for everyone, at least do for someone. So there's got to be a way to be spectacular around this, guys. There just has to be a way. So if your heart is pounding, then tune out the sermon and uh, follow that link and, uh, and be, the, be the body of, of Christ today. So anyway, morning one and all. If you're new here or if we don't know each other, my name is Jason. It's always good to be back here. Today we continue our summer preaching series. See, that's me getting right to it. It feels unnatural. It doesn't feel right, Ernest. It just feels like I'm hurrying up, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, jumping back into our, pre- our summer preaching series, and the title is, is Wait What? Bible Studies for Grown-Ups. And really the title, as all good titles do, is the workhorse of the piece of content, right? So like there's a great book by Dan Allender that you can skip the book, just read the title. The title is Leading with a Limp. You've read the book. Uh, so what I'm intending to do here with this title in this bag of sermons over the summer is really normalize and sort of give you permission to feel a couple of things that you've always felt anyway. The first of them is some of this stuff has just always felt unbelievable. It's just always felt unbelievable, right? And the second part is there's actually a way as adults to hold ancient texts that is somewhat more sophisticated, if not way more sophisticated than biblical literalism. And so I'm really preaching at this point all summer against holding it the way maybe we were taught to hold it as children. There's got to be a more sophisticated way than just leaving it the way it was. So that's where we're going. The contrast between this week's sermon and last week's sermon, last week we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, and this week we're going to talk about Moses and the Exodus. And the contrast could not be more stark. I mean, we're talking about gunpowder and aspirin at this point. These could not be more more different. And so my week was very different as I prepared for this. Last week's story has been used to inflict countless wounds against people that we love, and today's has always been a source of hope, the story of the Exodus. Maybe your mind, like mine, goes immediately to the facticity of these stories. I was a literature student, and the very first thing I often think about is, did this really happen? Is this fact or fiction? Is this a novel? Or is this, you get what I'm saying? Did this, could this really have occurred? And if your mind goes there, then it's, it's probably pretty likely that you're recovering like me from a lifetime of biblical literalism where we were taught you just don't get to ask hard questions of the text. Good kids don't ask these questions was really the answer to all of my questions as a child. But if you begin there, then I want to just tell you, follow your curiosity. Always follow your curiosity, friend. Acknowledged or not, I think the truth about us all is that our curiosity has always been our greatest spiritual guide. That's always been the case for you. And so follow it wherever you need to follow it. It's our collective curiosity, after all, that's allowing us to push past the ugly and the awkward and the unbelievable to rediscover something of beauty in these old stories. Curiosity reacquaints us with awe and with wonder. It puts us in the posture of childlikeness, not childishness, which is how I would describe biblical literalism. It puts us in a posture to receive something of beauty from these old stories. Now today our attention moves from the book of Genesis, where it has been for several weeks now, to the opening half of the book of Exodus. And just like Genesis, Exodus has similar principles of collection and compilation and redaction over time. Variety and diversity were apparently important to those who compiled these books because it's full of variety and diversity. Uh, Exodus, just like Genesis, records in many cases several versions of the same story. And it weaves them together in ways that are confusing and it takes actually quite a bit of uh, academic work to pull them back apart to see them and appreciate them as separate sort of threads. 
The book of Exodus is a collection of memories, all intensely tribal, all intensely focused on making Israel the protagonist, as you could imagine. You know, the historians, uh, the history is always written by the conqueror. That's that's just sort of the way it works. But it's a collection of memories, all focused on Israel, assembled and redacted to make meaning of, a new, of this new God that they were being reacquainted with named Yahweh. It was a deity that they were just getting to know. Now think about this. They were in Egypt for 400 years. They had forgotten the faith of their fathers. And so they're stepping out, making some bold moves with this new God, defined by this interesting set of consonants that they were never supposed to pronounce or write, named Yahweh. Now, it's essentially a national reset, if you will. And Exodus tells the story of their emancipation, which takes them to a barren place where they'd have to build a brand new cosmovision. In fact, probably the best way to understand Exodus, if not the whole Old Testament, is to understand it as a point-by-point refutation of Egyptian cosmology. Because, they, because they're literally stepping out from under it, creating something new in, its, in that space. They only knew the gods of Egypt at this point. The faith of their fathers was something they'd heard about, but they had forgotten Now, if you're wondering, it's almost impossible to actually date the book of Exodus. There is, regretfully, practically no unbiased archaeological evidence that this story ever really occurred. There's no all-of-the-sudden labor shortage in Egypt that we can affirm. There's no all-of-the-sudden disappearance of a massive army of chariots. None of those things have been found, at least not on the scale that the Bible seems to suggest. Now, remember... These are not eyewitness accounts. These are mythological stories of origin and identity, and they were written, most scholars believe, some 300, if not 400 years after the actual flight out of Egypt of the Hebrews. And Abraham's descendants weren't always slaves to the pharaohs, you would remember. When they first drifted south due to the persistent famine to the north, they actually were featured or they were prominently positioned in places of power and influence under the pharaohs. I wonder if you remember that first great self-preserving Enneagram 4 named Joseph. He had a cool coat. He was known for having a -a one-of-a-kind coat at goals, life goals. That's me. That's me. But very briefly, to span that gap between Abraham and Moses, because a lot lot of Christians really have no idea how to place this in a timeline. Let me just make it real simple, very briefly. Abraham and Sarah receive a promise to have a child. They They give birth to Isaac in their old age. Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have Jacob. Jacob marries Rachel, and they have 12 sons, of which Joseph was the last and the least liked. When Joseph was sold into the service, into service or into slavery by his brothers, he found his way into Pharaoh's inner circle down in Egypt. And actually, thanks to Joseph, the descendants of Abraham survived for those 400 years. But in time, they grew more and more numerous and influential until the Pharaoh no longer felt certain that his slaves wouldn't rise up against the authority of his divine, human divine institution of his cobra crown. And so he begins to deal with them harshly. And this is when Moses steps to center stage of our story. And you remember the story. The Hebrews were suffering greatly under the pharaohs. Pharaoh ordered the midwives uh, to, to murder the newborn Hebrew boys on the birthing stool so that they would sort of curtail the growth of that race or that group of people. And so Moses' mother does what mothers do. She protects him by floating him down the Nile in a basket sealed with pitch. Discovered in the river by Pharaoh's daughter, ironically, uh, Moses is raised in the royal household as the son of the empire itself. And at some point, he discovers that he was, in fact, a descendant of this laboring class, of these people known to the Egyptian as the Abiru, which is where we think the word Hebrew comes from. It simply means outsider. Transformed by this newfound history, his new identity, Moses is unable to contain his anger when he agrees, or I'm sorry, when he sees that a Hebrew is being beaten by an Egyptian. Now, he was influential enough to have murdered anyone at will. He would have gotten away with it. That wasn't the point. But what he thought went unobserved one day when he murders an, an Egyptian 
uh, didn't get actually, wasn't actually unobserved. And word gets out when he breaks up the fight between two Hebrews the following day, and they paused their brawl enough to make it known to him that the reputation was already running around, that he was in fact a cold-blooded murderer. And so Moses flees into the desert, where he begins again, where he comes of age, where he resets. And this will go on to become probably the greatest theme of the Bible. A journey into the wilderness is generally always seen as the way forward. It almost always becomes synonymous with finding God and finding self, which in time the great mystics would help us understand is really the same epic journey, that of finding God and finding self. Eventually Moses stumbles upon a burning bush, which is no strange occurrence here in Austin. All of our bushes are on fire this time of year. It's the only joke about weather. I've tried to always get one in. But he comes upon a burning bush. But this one is different. It's ablaze, according to the story, with somehow it's not being consumed, which is where Moshe, which would be his Hebrew tra- tra- uh, pronunciation of his name, has his first life-altering encounter with Yahweh. But Yahweh, friends, is unlike other deities of the ancient world. Outcries of su- and suffering of, uh, and the suffering and the injustice of, of a slave class of people under empire had somehow found their way to the ears of this strangely attentive firebush god. So Moses, now an old man, receives a proposition from this god to go back to Egypt. That's where we get the go down Moses idea from. And to go back as a spokesperson of this blazing bush abolitionist deity focused on justice for the least to demand that the pharaohs set his hobby roof free. But Moshe is no longer a young man full of vim and vigor. He stammers now, confidence another casualty of the desert apparently. So he doesn't immediately accept the opportunity to speak for this odd god, this divine enigma, this rascal of weather and wildlife about who he still knows almost nothing, remember. Nothing that is except that this divine bender of the laws of nature somehow hears the cries of forgotten slaves. Now, don't overlook this point, friend. If you're looking for a reason why this is in our text, hang on to this for a second. You see, the Hebrews were slaves. These were not the kinds of people that gods would have spoken to in the ancient world. They were nobodies. And this is a massive innovation, friends. We're talking about a God who talks to wandering herdsmen in the middle of nowhere while still respecting somehow the divine life of the bush itself. And what did this God talk about when he gets Moses' attention? Not pyramids or monuments or new demands. This divine enigma named I Am somehow wanted to talk about salvation and rescue of enslaved people known only for their ability to outlast the sun making bricks to stack in honor of Egyptian deities. This is a brand spanking new concept, friend, so don't overlook this. But why Moses? By now, his only real expertise and vocation is finding viable pastures in burning hot land for wandering dependents, furry dependents for now, but not for long. This skill, my friend, would come in handy, but let's be honest, this wasn't Moses' best decade. Nevertheless, Moses and his brother Aaron go down to Egypt to begin negotiating with the most powerful man in their world. But it doesn't go very well, does it? You'll remember. What sitting king listens to unknown magicians from the desert speaking about a burning, shrubbery, smoking mountain god whose name is a little more than a riddle, a riddle that you've never heard of? I am, says Pharaoh. That's his name? (laughs) But Moses persists. The nature bender and the desert magician, they go to work on Pharaoh, don't they, to wear him down. The story says Pharaoh agreed to let them go after the ten plagues in one place. It also says he didn't in another place. In one place, they're given permission to travel to the mountain of fire and smoke to offer sacrifices to their riddle god. In another place, Moshe literally has to sneak out of town under the cover of night with a ton of people, which seems kind of unlikely to me. I suppose it doesn't matter really. The point is Pharaoh has a human heart like every other human heart and his human heart went back and forth several times before it made its decision like every other human heart does. 
The point is that once the Habiru leave, the Hebrews leave, Pharaoh repents of his loss of laborers, so he readies his finest and his fastest chariots to ride down this massive mob of wanderers, traveling on foot now, young and old, women and children, all headed north-northwest. Now, if you have some sense of the geography of the ancient world, you would know how easy it would have been to understand the translation of the body of water that they crossed as the Red Sea. It becomes known as the Red Sea, the place where they crossed across, where the waters welled up and you know the whole deal. But that's a mistranslation you need to know. In Hebrew, it says that Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Yam Shupa, which was literally meant the Sea of Reeds. We're talking about probably some sort of marshland. We're talking about some delta of, of a greater body of water, but it doesn't matter. The Red Sea would have been a much more impressive crossing to make on foot, being some 200 miles wide at that point. So you can hardly fault the storytellers 400 years later for making this tiny editorial redaction. I can freely admit to you as a student of the scriptures without losing respect for this story that it seems very unlikely to me that two million people snuck away on foot and got all the way to the Red Sea before Pharaoh could catch them with the fastest moving land army known to the ancient world. It's unbelievable to me. I'm just going to say it. It's also not the point of the story. None of this happened the way Cecil B. DeMille depicted it in that epically awful movie in 1956 called The Ten Commandments. Now, I know it won seven academies, but it was, it was garbage, y'all. What can I tell you? <laughs> and DreamWorks didn't improve the game much in 1998 with their Prince of Egypt. They got so many things wrong. They got an academy, too. Apparently, there's an appetite for the story of Moses in the, in the Red Sea. We don't know exactly what happened. We can never know exactly what happened. The text itself isn't even clear. Let me point out to you three or, three or four different perspectives on what happened here very, very briefly. In the first and what we believe to be the oldest, God blows the sea back with a strong easterly wind, allowing the Israelites to cross on dry land. That's the first rendition. In the second, Moses stretches his hands out and the waters part in response to Moses' staff. In the third, God just jams up the chariot wheels of the Egyptians and they flee. In this one, it never says they go into the water at all. In fact, we don't even know if it was the reeds that blocked the wheels. Some say it was. The word in Hebrew literally says the wheels just came off of their chariots. And in the fourth, in the Song of Miriam, which we're going to look at later, or the Song of the Sea, God casts the Egyptians into the very depths of the abyss, which existed in their worldview somehow beneath the ocean itself, where they were nowhere near the depths, but... I'm not sure it matters. Like all other Old Testament stories, this is a collection of tellings from several generations. Variety just reminds us that precise details were probably not the main point. Now, it may not be a perfectly recalled story. Nonetheless, in my opinion, there is no better, more inspiring story of deliverance maybe ever told in any culture. Of all the deep memories to waft to us on the winds of history from the ancient world, this one is unique in its beauty and in its power. And I wonder if you know this, white friend, that the Exodus story is the central axis of meaning and identity for the black church in America. It is the gospel within the text for them. And so with great humility, I bring it up at all. As a white man, I can't possibly know what this story means to them. But the story of a God who heard the cries of an enslaved race and then moved earth and sky to harden the heart of the wicked king to set them free was everything in the world to them. They caught this before they could read it in English. They understood this God intuitively. It became their gospel within the text for obvious reasons. I'm just going to let that be right there. Well, the full story takes many chapters to unfold, and we don't have time to read it all, so we're just going to drop in to a song of praise that falls in chapter 15. Now, I know it as the Song of Miriam, and I wrote on this in seminary extensively. The Song of Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister. Your version of the Bible, if you look at it in print, will probably call it the Song of Moses. You see, English translators of the 19th and 20th centuries thought that it was scandalous that a woman might lead Israel, even if just in song, well, whatever. Scholars know this is the Song of Miriam. I'm going to try not to chase that rabbit as we go. But I can tell you exactly why I'm right. Anyway, 
So let's read it together. Let's read this together. I had a great Old Testament professor who was wonderfully feminist and incredibly liberal, and we looked at this, and we looked at it for months and months, and I can, I can tell you what I think is going on here. Anyway, Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 and forward. It reads this way. It begins with the word then in verse 1, and here's what you need to know. Okay, I'm just going to give it to you because, you know, it's the 11 o'clock. Why not? Here's what happens. The song of Moses and the song of Miriam are put like this, right? The song of Miriam is put at the bottom, but the then that her song opens with is in reference to the crossing. His then that, that, that they put into the lips of Moses is in reference to Miriam's song. And so what you need to know is that they thought they would submit her song under his in keeping with good patriarchal custom. What they forgot to edit out was the fact that it calls her a prophetess. So they blew it anyway. The bottom line is, this is a song of response to the miraculous deliverance that God had given them. Then Moses and the Israelites, verse 1, sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, has thrown, he has thrown into the sea. And this is an antiphone. They are repeating what she just led in song. The Lord is my strength and my might or my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Now, pause a second. Remember, they're being reacquainted with the God of their fathers. You can hear that intimacy, right? They're beginning to experience for the first time this God that they'd only heard about and probably only rarely heard about at this point. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse three, the Lord is a warrior. And confusingly in Hebrew, it literally says he's a man, a human man of war. I don't know how that ends up being left in there. The Lord is his name. Verse four, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His elite officers were sunk in the sea of reeds. Your Bible would say the Red Sea, but that's okay. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Verse seven, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. And this is where Charlton Heston must have been inspired. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps, con I'm talking about the movie, guys. Y'all just drop your politics of the 1990s. I'm just talking about the movie here. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue you. And it's interesting that even in their song of praise, they quote the voice of Pharaoh. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. I'm not sure what sort of spoil the slaves might have been able to carry with them, but it couldn't have been much. My desire shall have its fill on them, I of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Acknowledgement of a pantheon there. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, aware, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. I thought water did, but nonetheless, you get my point. Skipping forward to verse 19. And this little bit is no longer poetry. This is prose. When the horse, horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his chariot drivers went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. And this little bit would belong above, but we'll take it where it is, the song of Miriam. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, open mic, you got the mic? Oh, he's got his running shoes on too. Take a deep breath. What strikes you about this story? I wanna hear from some of you. I don't wanna hear entirely from one of you, I wanna hear from some of you. What strikes you about this story? Where's the beauty here? Where's the odd? Where's the strange? Where's the amazing? Same thing happened at the 930. We can outweigh y'all. 
<laughs> Where's the beauty here? Someone. Don. Yeah. The salvation. Come on, y'all. I have to. The head scratcher to me is this, that this here and in other places in Scripture, the wait what, the salvation of God's people comes through the desolation of others who are also God's children. Oh, my God, you're on it, Don. See, this is so confusing. Okay, Internet that just heard this. Um, send your emails to him. Uh, he's at Don at Don.com. Don um, at AustinNewChurch.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys, let me just tell you something real quick. We traditionally, tell me if I'm right, Don, in the Christian church, in Christian theology, we, we leave Pharaoh as a very flat and one-dimensional character. We make Pharaoh the enemy in every way. And we do it for literary purposes to feel really big about our own center stage and protagonism of our stories. But the bottom line is God loved Pharaoh as much as he loved anyone who left Egypt that night. Can you hold that in your heart? So Don, who's, been, who's traveled to the Middle East countless times, I don't even remember how many times you've been there, to, to even acknowledge the fact that this is the, really the B-side of a coin to someone else's story, that at some point we should flip and read that way too, is a powerful thing. Thank you, Don. Yes, I love it when a plan comes together. We didn't prepare this in advance, in case you needed to know that. Yes, what else? What you got, Reagan? I have a, I mean, more of a question. Do we actually know the, like, time length between when the Israelites cross the water and when Pharaoh and his chariots cross the water? Uh, we know virtually nothing about that level of detail. We just don't. You can, you, can, uh, you can spend multiple graduate degrees trying to figure it out and end up not really moving the needle. We don't know. I don't know. Do you know? No, I mean, we were talking about, is it possible that maybe it was longer after than we thought and it was... Like the water dried up and then the water reappeared and stopped. Like Y'all, I geeked out in. so deep this week and I read, about, I read about land bridges in the lake of Taunus or whatever. I read about, you know, strange winds that, I, ah, I don't know. I don't know. Good stuff though. What else? What's beautiful here? Can somebody put their finger on what's beautiful or what's really, really hard to believe? We got two up here when you're done. Yes. Um, I think what's beautiful is the reuniting of God with his people. Like it's almost a prodigal son, but like reverse. I love that. Trey and I were talking about this while the band was leading their second very meaningful, passionate set of songs that we weren't listening to at all in the last service. We were texting about what happens to the God of these people between Abraham and Moses. Yeah, good stuff. I love that too. It's a, it's a reintroduction, isn't it? Yeah. Over here. We had two over here. Kitty, of course, and then in front you. Yeah. I think what's beautiful um, is that they're falling in love with the Lord. Yeah. And you can't miss that. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. It's going to be a long love affair, guys. It's going to be a long, slow courtship, isn't it? Full of all sorts of strange things. But yeah. Yes, right here. I just think it's beautiful. Um, when there seems to be no way to freedom, he yeah. always makes the way. I love that. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the concept of deliverance. Now, we've got a disproportionate amount of left side reflection of on the left side of church here. Anyone over here? I, yes, yes. Back here. Halfway back. Keep burning those calories, Trey. Uh, not really beauty, but something that always, it doesn't puzzle me, but it, uh, there were 400 years of Israelites who lived in slavery as part of God's plan yep. for this exodus. Ugh. 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 Boy, how many ways did the white church bend that? Dang. Y'all, it's God's sovereign plan that you guys serve. Yeah. Ugh. Ah. Yep. Ugh. Ah. Anyway, 
Anybody else? You can find a biblical justification for any evil you can conceive of if you want to. If you want to helicopter pull the little things out and say, "See that," and so we're gonna. Yeah, no, nah, let's not do that with the text. There's more beautiful reasons to sit with this than that. I think we agree on that. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. I find something beautiful about Moses making a mistake and losing everything, but then God comes back and he's not confident. He has zero confidence, but. Mm-hmm. He's willing to take a step, and then he doesn't know how it's going to turn out, but yeah. God uses it anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. What, and hang on, stay there. What do you what do you think was Moses's mistake? Well, he killed someone. He ran away, and then he was just isolated. Which you is know, interesting. Like, it's okay. It's interesting because as the son of empire, to murder someone was no big deal. That was. I wonder. Is this? I'm not challenging you so much as I'm challenging you, which is just another way of saying I'm challenging you. <laughs> I just. I wonder if if he fled because he was in trouble, or if he fled because all of a sudden he realized his whole world was a lie. He was actually one of the slaves. He came from that bloodline. That I wonder. is. How, that's how I see it. It's not. I don't know that he was afraid because he was right. going to be judicially punished. Right. He was afraid because. He didn't know what he stood for anymore. He didn't know who he was. That's right. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. Oh, God, yeah. Maybe we can stop right there. Okay. I love this passage. I love Exodus 15. There was a time when it's all I read. It's obvious to me that this is more than a single song. I just have to point this out. It's more like an album, honestly. This is a several, several reflections compressed into one thing. It's a collection of hymns that spanned many years. And if you read it, including the verses that I cut out for, this, for the length of time, it refers to lands and peoples that the, that the Israelites couldn't have known at the time. And so I think it's like a songbook, if you will. And it's attributed to, at least the leading of those songs is attributed to Miriam, the sister, the prophetess, the sister of Moses. We could spend a ton of time here, but we won't for the sake of time. But I do feel like it's important to point out that these people... We're just getting to know this God again. This, this is a courtship that we're looking at. You might think of it as a first dance. And when I think of first dance, I go back to Duran Duran and shoulder pads in the 1980s. Anybody else old enough in here to go back all the way to Duran Duran? Millennials Googling Duran Duran, cats on keyboard. Oh, what's Duran Duran? Anyway, Moses will go on to give many, many instructions to, these, to this assembled children of Israel, this group of people traveling around over the time that his leadership flowers and their followership follows suit. But this first set of instructions to me are so important. They might be the most important set of instructions that God ever conveyed to that group of people through Moses. And what were they? Very simple, three parts, three pieces. Number one, do not be afraid, fear not. Number two, stand firm. Hold the ground you just conquered. Hold the ground you're standing on. And number three, be still and watch deliverance happen to you. That's the way it is stated in the Hebrew. Well, that sounds super easy. How hard could that be? You see, after all, these people went out into the wilderness. They trusted Moses at least enough to follow him, at least enough to follow him into this place that they would have surely known would have been nearly impossible to survive in. They were immediately, though, set up in a trap, as we know. Water in front of them, whether it was the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds or it was a mirage, it doesn't make any difference. Water in front and a surging army behind, they were immediately stuck. They were afraid and they were vulnerable and full of regret already, but mostly I think that they were afraid, which is what I think this story is actually about, fear. Which is why the divine instructions that come through Moses to the people begin there. Don't be afraid, fear not, stand firm and watch deliverance happen to you. Fear, I'm convinced, friend, is the most universal of all human sensations. I know you don't think other people are afraid, but it is. I think it's the most universal human posture. And of course, the naming and the eliminating of fear back then, just as is today the case, is the starting point of nearly all religious systems. 
and God has his work cut out for him, doesn't he? Doesn't he? This speaks to shepherds, listens to slaves. God would have to slowly woo this fearful, oppressed people, winning their trust one incredible stunt at a time. After all, as we've been saying, this was a new God and a new people, and this would take time, naturally. And as we go on to discover, you can take the Israelite out of Egypt overnight, but it takes a lifetime to take Egypt out of the heart of an Israelite, meaning fear as an internal structure, as a structure of internal enslavement goes with you into the wilderness well beyond the actual presence and shadow of Pharaoh and his chariots. The Exodus is more than just a story of how one people found freedom. It's A, it's not the only, but it's our most cherished, I would suggest, powerful metaphor of how to find freedom and maintain freedom of fear and bondage. Think about it. Let's dial this into 2022 now. What happens when you wake up one day and realize that you're stuck? I mean, totally stuck, as in there's no way out enslaved and in bondage in ways that you can no longer tolerate. You see, everything was fine until it wasn't, but now all of a sudden, it's not fine anymore. And you know how that often occurs? You overhear someone else speaking of freedom, and all of a sudden, you realize, I'm completely and utterly stuck. So you leave the safety and the predictability of your current bondage, and you take your chances in the howling winds of open spaces where fear is the first thing that floats to the surface before anything else happens. Your heart stops in fear, doesn't it? Friends, this is, I think, the universal process of coming of age. It's about dealing with fear. It's about confronting confinement and constriction, facing terror head on, one thing at a time. I don't remember the last time I looked under a bed and worried if there was a monster that might eat me when the lights are out. I conquered that fear at one point. But what we're talking about here is basic instinct of fear and God's people learning to trust as they emerge into adulthood. It occurred to me this week that adulthood is really more about reps, isn't it, than anything else. Adulthood is about confronting fear again and again until fundamental change begins to happen in us. Adulthood isn't natural age or lapse of the sun or basic accumulated chronology. Adulthood is about agency acquired the hard way by confronting things that we're afraid of when we find ourselves stuck between immovable things and unstoppable things. That's right where deliverance is supposed to happen. It's where freedom is supposed to be born. This is the heart and soul of the book of Exodus to me. It's the arduous process of getting free and staying free. This journey will feature in time regret and pain and suffering and lots of murmuring and thirst and a burning hot Texas-style sun. It'll even feature some venomous snakes if you happen, happen to love those. But it will also feature sweet water from a rock and a shade, the shade of a mysterious cloud and Uber Eats delivered daily with the morning dew. Oh yeah, and shoes, I love that, right? And shoes that never wear out because there's no cobblers in the desert. You can keep the manna, I'll take the shoes. Anyway, the wilderness is where fear gives way to freedom. It has nothing whatsoever to do with punishment, friend. I want you to understand this. Take a pause a second. If you find yourself in a wilderness, it's not about being punished for having done something wrong. This is the only way to liberation. It's the only way to freedom. We pray against the desert more than we pray against any other thing. We're rebuking the very way through which we are going to be set free and delivered. The wilderness is where fear gives way to freedom. I wonder, I wonder, friend, do you sometimes believe that you're the only one who suffers from paralyzing fear of the unknown? Do you feel like you're the only one struggling? Do you sometimes believe that everyone else has already come of age, everyone that is except you? Can you tell when your preacher gets weirdly autobiographical by the way he shapes a question about fear? <laughs> Jordan on the front row connected that dot. Yeah. Friends, is it normal to have to fight so hard to get free and stay free of paralyzing fear? Is it normal? 
Do you believe that it's abnormal or somehow suboptimal to have to work so hard for your own deliverance? Others don't seem to have to from my Instagram perspective on the world. I wonder, are you really as alone in this paralyzing fear as you sometimes feel? Friend, this is what the book of Exodus is about. You know what I think? I think everyone is afraid nearly all the time. Now, we're afraid of different things, but everyone is still coming of age and learning that deliverance will always, hear me, friend, it will always be an internal reality born only of an internal journey into the unknown where being terrified is part of the package. It's never not going to be terrifying to become an adult and grow up in the wilderness. You see, pharaohs live mostly on the inside, don't they? At least the hardest ones to deal with do. Egypt is a metaphor, friend, for all the places and spaces and the ways of being that we leave behind when we're ready, of course when we're ready, to get ourselves free by getting ourselves completely stuck between unmovable objects and unstoppable forces because that's exactly where full agency and full adulthood and and full and free existence are found. That's exactly where it's to be found. Egypt is also its own magnificent culture. I read much on it this week, one full of worthy people that God loved just as much as any of the children of the Hebrews. If I was an expert in Egyptology, hear me clearly, I could point out to you all of the redemptive overtures and divine revelations that they received from God, the ground of being, but I am not. Alas, for your purposes, for our purposes, Egypt is a metaphor for us of the things that we leave behind. So I offer you this final thought. Where's my musicians? He never knows whether to trust how final the thought is. What do we make of this story of deliverance? Who is this fiery, burning, smoky mountain, nature-shaping God who frogs and flies and rivers and regions obey? Who is this God most high who listens, who is moved to compassion by the songs the outcries of suffering slaves? Who is this God who deploys the hurting talents and speaking skills of a desert magician, a nobody, to pull every last pharaoh from their fearful hearts. And what, dear one, can we say about this of all strategy, non-strategies that always begins and ends the same? It begins with fear not, and then it moves to hold your ground, and then it moves to watch deliverance happen to you. You know what this is, friend? This is non-action we're looking at. This isn't the plan. This is observation. This is contemplation. This is a posture more than a plan. This is counterintuitive. And this, after all these years of walking with this still emerging God in my heart, has become so familiar to me. This is about being protected. This is about being fed. This is about accepting that life and love will always lead me and you to impossible places because that's exactly where deliverance comes from, within. Oh, friends, I wonder if you would just let me say it as simply as I can say it this morning. Any conversation about fear to me is really about accepting that I'm worth delivering at all. Hear me. Hear me now. That, dear friend, is my deepest and most abiding fear, if you must know, that I'm mostly worth leaving behind, that I'm mostly worth forgetting, that mostly I'm just here to stack bricks in honor of someone else's God, but that's not true. Not for me and not for you. You are, friend, worthy of being delivered the hard way, the slow way, the real way. You are worth being delivered, that is, of all your fears, and all your pharaohs. If I am, then so are you.
that was perfectly. 